This is New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm Banaf Shamadani Najad. My guests, Shane Bauer, Sarah Short, and Josh Patal, are the three young American hikers who, in the summer of 2009, were imprisoned in Iran on espionage charges. Bauer and Short were living together in Syria, teaching and writing before taking a trip to Iraq, where their friend, Josh Patal, joined them from the United States. While in Iraqi Kurdistan, they decided to go for a hike, and as they were hiking along a road that turned out to be the border with Iran, an armed man in uniform waves them over. The next thing they know, they have embarked on a two-year-long ordeal in the infamous Evin prison in Tehran. The memoir they have written about their imprisonment is called Sliver of Light. Josh Fatal, Sarah Short, Shane Bauer, welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I wonder if you could all begin by saying a few words about your life, what your life was like prior to what happened in the book. Specifically, maybe we could start with uh, how you became interested in uh, in the Middle East or Middle Eastern politics. Shane, would you like to go first? Sure. I first came to the Middle East in uh, 2002, kind of just traveling. I was, you know, pretty young. I was about I was 19, and I kind of later decided to study Arabic, and, and you know, the, the Iraq war started shortly after that, and I, you know, was interested in, in becoming a journalist and kind of monitoring what our country was, was doing in the Middle East um, in terms of military and, and you know, po- politics in general. So I start coming to the Middle East to study Arabic and then later was making trips for work as a journalist. And, you know, so it was kind of a combination for me of a kind of political interest and also just I loved the region. I loved Syria. Um, I also lived in Yemen and um, spent a lot of years there, um, you know, before all this happened. Sarah? I was, I, I moved to Damascus with Shane in 2009 Oh, no, 2008, about a year before we were captured. And I had a wonderful year living in, in Damascus. Damascus was then a was really vibrant, diverse capital. I was studying Arabic at the university and starting out as a journalist and teaching Iraqi refugees. Teaching English? Yeah, I was teaching English. It was a program called the Iraqi Student Project, helping Iraqi refugees in Damascus get into colleges in the U.S. and Europe and, and pursue higher education because they were barred from it in Syria at the time. But moving to the Middle East was really an extension of my anti-war work that had been going on since I was in college. And I wanted, I'd always wanted to go. And when Shane and I fell in love, he kind of opened up that world for me. I'd done a lot of international solidarity work in Mexico with the Zapatistas. And um, I was eager to, to discover the Middle East. What about you, Josh? Well, I, I grew up kind of discussing and thinking about Middle Eastern politics. My father is uh, Iraqi-Israeli uh, before he moved to the U.S. And um, But I became more involved in, in community organizing in, in, um, in the U.S., you know, in, in Oregon, where I was living for a few years before traveling. And... Um, I got a fellowship to uh, to work abroad for a few for uh, several months for the spring 2009 semester, and uh, I worked for a study abroad program. And there, when it finished, I ended up visiting these guys in uh, Syria, and from there we went to uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. So it wasn't that you joined them in Iraq from the United States. You first went to Syria, and then you all went together for vacation? Mm-hmm. I had just been there. I had just been in Syria about a week, and they had been there for uh, a lot longer. And you guys knew each other before through college? or? Yeah, I, I knew them from, um, from when I was an undergraduate. Uh, Shane and I lived in the same you know, apartment of the house uh, in Oakland, California, and, uh, and I knew Sarah from then as well. Okay, so I think you guys touched on this a little bit, but maybe we could go a little further into it. I guess, how would you describe your political worldviews? And how did you see your role in the world prior to being taken prisoner in Iran? Um, I would say, you know, speaking for myself, um, that I've kind of always been um, critical of, of power, I guess I would say, and um, kind of abusive power, 
part of what uh, brought me into um, journalism, you know, in in my own country and everywhere in the world, really. You know, I think that's that's still the same. I don't think that was something that was changed through the this experience necessarily. What about you, Josh? Um, you know, I... I... I kind of grew to become very critical of uh, capitalism and the lack of democracy in America. And that was just, you know, that became apparent just in everyday life here and from, from my studies and from, 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 the, from the news. And I think the war in Iraq uh, helped, helped me kind of, um, I think George Bush kind of laid bare the mechanisms of what was sort of the, the momentum of some of the U.S. foreign policy and, and whatnot. So that's kind of where, in any case, that's, that's kind of where I was when I ended up on the border. And then, um, and I had been, uh, like I said, I was traveling that year. So I had been to India and China and South Africa uh, and in Switzerland. So I've kind of had a lot of exposure to sort of, um, see, in China, sort of authoritarian regimes, but I think, uh, in a way, my time in Iran helped to uh, broaden the scope of the, the different types of oppressive governments and the different types of um, sort of ways, means of control. Okay. What about you, Sarah? I, I spent my 20s really um, supporting movements for autonomy, people's movements within and outside the United States. I think all my work is always centered around justice and bringing stories and looking at people that are on the margins or the front lines of really global domination from a feminist or anti-imperialist perspective. All right. So maybe we could go back to the day you guys were sort of, I, I for the lack of a better word, I'm just going to say captured. Can you set up the picture a little bit? Tell us what was going on that day and Tell us about your hike and what exactly happened. How did you end up on the wrong side of the border? Sarah, would you like to go? Sure. Well, our plan that day was was to go on a hike. It was it was a beautiful day, and we had arrived the night before at Ahmadawa, which is a popular tourist destination for locals and for for internationals in northern Iraqi Kurdistan. We had spent the night near the waterfall where there were hundreds of other people, uh, Kurdish families, um, camping and celebrating and enjoying the, the waterfall there in the outdoors. And then in the morning, we asked a tea vendor to show us a good trail to hike on. And I think if we made any mistake, we hiked too far. We wanted to get to the top of the mountain. We wanted to get a good view. And it just seemed like we were getting closer and closer. And it was just a, a little bit farther and the whole view would open up to us. And when we got to the top, we saw a soldier in the distance and he motioned for us to walk further down the trail where, and we, we did so. And when we, after we walked further down the trail, we met another soldier and that was the first evidence or even, you know, remote um, intimation that we had, that we were anywhere near the unmarked border between Iraq and Iran. Okay. And that, and then what happened? You wanted to go back or you started getting nervous? Exactly what happened after that? Josh, jump in whenever you want to. Yeah, well, when we, when we found out these were Iranian guards, we, uh, we wanted to turn around immediately. Um, uh, but they wouldn't let us. And they had uh, guns on their shoulders. So we listened to them. And uh, we stayed in their custody for a few hours before they... Um, kind of transferred us to some other folks and went down the hill. And, uh, you know, before we knew it, we were getting interrogated. So uh, it just kind of snowballed pretty quickly. Um, but definitely when we, at that moment, we uh, kind of kind of had to realize that we weren't where we thought we were. And the initial impulse was to just turn around. Did you want to add something to that, Shane? For me, I felt like this this situation was going to be resolved fairly quickly, even after we they told us we couldn't go back. I had had other times in the Middle East where I'd been detained for short periods, where some you know 
police or government will be suspicious of me, you know, walking around taking pictures. And I thought this would be like that, that we would kind of um, get questioned, maybe have to stay the night and then it would all be over. It just seemed impossible that, you know, Iran would want to have put itself in, in this kind of major controversy. Yeah, it, it would certainly seem so. Okay, so my question is, do you guys think the waving across the border was something that the Border Patrol soldier was doing to sort of get over his boredom? Or was there something sinister? Did the sinister stuff sort of happen later? Uh, sinister in the sense that uh, somebody wanted to create drama, you know, sort of looking back, obviously it's hard to tell, but do you guys have any inkling as to what was going on, what might have gone on? My sense no, of it was I that think. there there was um, this situation snowballed over time. Um, you know, we were in these mountains. We were, we were far from this tourist area. And, you know, now it's obvious to us that, you know, people probably don't show up there very often um, near that border. And this is just this outpost that was far from any Iranian city. And I think they saw us and just were surprised and, you know, called us over. You know, I don't think they, it was all in the border guard's head that we would be taken to Evin prison and held for a long time. I think they just saw us and were kind of trying to do their what they saw as their duty, and then we're passed off. And we kind of, the responsibility for us just went higher and higher up the ladder until it was, you know, the judiciary and the president and the supreme leader um, that were calling the shots. Anybody else want to add something? Yeah, I'll add something. Um, I mean, of course, it's impossible to know what was going on in the minds of those border guards. And I, I long ago stopped trying to speculate. But... I, there was contacted by one of them several years after I was freed through Facebook. And I had an interesting conversation with him. At first, of course, I didn't believe it was him. All kinds of people have contacted me through Facebook as a result of my captivity. But he knew a lot of really specific details from that day. And it convinced me that it was the border guard that I had spent a lot of time talking to. And I asked him where the border was, whether it was the trail that we were hiking on on, the, on top of the ridge or the small building where the soldiers had been standing. And he said it was the building. Um, so that, that makes me believe that it's likely that the guards didn't want to come to us for fear of crossing into Iraqi Kurdistan. They stayed near the building and didn't come to the trail. But all of these things seem sort of irrelevant when you look at the larger picture of the story. I mean, crossing into Iran as a first offense, according to the Iranian legal system, the, um, the, the punishment is a fine and you're immediately released. So it's obvious that our case was political as soon as, as people higher in the um, Iranian government found out that we were American. Josh, did you want to add something to that? No, no, I think that you got a good picture of it. Right. Okay. So one of the things I loved about the book, and I really did love the book, was the style within which it was written. Uh, the prose is just beautiful. And it's so self-aware. You guys are so self-aware in your anguish and, and what's going on. And there's so much humility and compassion when you're telling your stories. But what I mean, all all the way throughout, I really enjoyed this mosaic format that you guys had it, because it really allowed for those three distinct voices. And at times it's so distinct, it's sort of very pleasantly jarring. Um, can you explain a little bit if there was a process, uh, how you came up with that format, how you decided to use it? Were there other choices that you sort of put aside um, as far as your your style went? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was almost uh, kind of obvious to us once we started because uh, we spent a lot of time with each other, at, you know, in prison. Um, just and whenever one of us talked for too long, it would get really boring and it wouldn't work out well. So we just had to rotate. Um, also, our editor 
uh, was very helpful in seeing uh, a sort of cinematic quality is what he kind of talked about uh, of of quickly switching from scene to scene. And so I think between our own experience and uh, that editorial guidance, that's, that's, that's what happened. Were there scenes that you remembered or, or incidences that you remembered differently that you all experienced or two of you experienced and then later on you were like, wait a minute, it wasn't like that, it was like that. And how did you resolve those? That happens sometimes. I mean, there are usually pretty minor details in the scheme of things. Um, but, I mean, that was also an asset for us because, you know, most memoirs are written by one person and they're just kind of relying on their own memory. And this experience was interesting in the sense of it just kind of showed us each our, our own memories, you know, and, and that they differ. Um, and, but, you know, we were able to kind of check each other. Like, if, if I didn't remember something, I could ask Josh, you know, who was in the cell with me most of the time. Also, you know, there might be a time that I would say something and the other two would say, no, it was this way. So there was some, you know, just having three of us, there was kind of, we could a lot of times just kind of go with the majority. Or if there were just, you know, two people that were involved in the situation and they both remember it different ways, we generally just say, okay, whoever's writing it, you know, especially if it's kind of a minor detail, then they would just go with what, what they remembered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so one thing that was interesting was writing the beginning of the book, the hike and the, the scene when we were captured. Um, and initially we kind of, it's like we each, you know, we told ourselves that story when we're in solitary confinement many times, gone over it just endlessly. And uh, we kind of like remembered ourselves as the protagonists kind of in that, mm. in that situation. Mm. We each did in a way. So that was an interesting dilemma to have to kind of sort out. Hey. I have, a, I have a, an example of that on the hike, on the part that I wrote on the hike. I wrote uh, the part where we we see the soldier wave us over the border. And I didn't remember at the time of writing, whether, I knew I didn't see it, but I, I couldn't remember if it was Shane or Sarah that's, that, that saw that. Um, and I remember asking them and... Um, they kind of both thought that they had seen the the soldier. So I forget how we actually resolved it, whether it was like flip a coin or just kind of went with one of them because on a certain level, and this is something that's just such a part of memoir writing where, it, you know, what comes, it, it all just comes down to what's in our heads and what's in, what's the, uh, the memory of that moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sarah, did you want to add to that? I mean, it was. It was a fascinating process. It was a fascinating way of exploring memory and fact and, and storytelling because I think that the way that we make sense out of our lives is by stringing together our experiences and making a narrative as individuals. And and many times there's there's no need to stick to the facts that we, we kind of add things and subtract things and remember things in a way that, that adds to our story. But for the three of us to do that together definitely kept us a lot more honest <laughs> um, and it, made, it forced us to scrutinize sometimes every detail. When did you decide to write a memoir? We, we talked about it in, in prison, but it wasn't something that, um, you know, it didn't have a whole lot of relevance. We just wanted, I mean, we were just worried about surviving and, and, you know, believing that we would be free at some point. But it was one of those things, just thinking about anything that would happen after prison was such a pleasurable thing for me um, that someday I would refer to prison in the past tense was, was, was so exciting in and of itself. Um, but it, quickly afterwards, I mean, for me, the main reason to write it was when I got out, there were so many different stories. I mean, people had almost no information from us when we were detained. And for me, being released before Shane and Josh and in the center of, of the media and campaign for their release, there was so much misinformation, so many slants. And it just really made me want to set the record straight and tell it from our perspective. Okay, so you started writing your side pretty much after you were released. 
Is that what you're saying? Um, maybe in my head. Yeah, and I started in seeing your head. Okay. Yeah, we all we all kind of start writing. I think about six months after um, Josh and I got out. Got out. I mean, you know, we had done a little bit of kind of uh, writing proposals and stuff, but um, we were, you know, when we first, when we all decided to do this together, um, and we kind of met with agents and publishers. There was a lot of pressure to write something immediately, and we just decided that we weren't going to do that. You know, that we needed to just adjust to being out and you know we weren't ready to kind of jump into that project and so the publisher we ended up going with Houghton Mifflin was really interested in having us write a book that we felt good about and that meant taking more time so that's kind of what decided it for us right one of the other things I really appreciated in the book was for me personally um, you shed some light on the a non-one-dimensional character of the interrogator as a trope. Obviously, the interrogators were first and foremost like the face of your captors who were torturing you in many ways, and we'll, we'll talk, hopefully we'll talk about that in a little bit. But at the same time, these were also folks who they were doing simple things like giving you your family letters. They were providing you with books, sometimes even showing you sort of uncharacteristic tenderness. They sometimes would give you hope. So I was wondering if you guys could sort of talk about some of the more memorable experiences with the guards, with the guard community at large, I guess, at Evin. Um, especially some of the characters like Ehsan, Father Guy, Dumb Guy. Yeah, I, I, I realize there's a lot there. So just, you know. I'll, I'll say a little bit about one of them. Um, interrogator that we call Dumb Guy was, uh, he was kind of this lasting figure throughout our imprisonment. He wasn't actually any of our primary interrogators when while we were being interrogated for two months. But he kind of, he was around and then he kind of became the person who was like our connection to the outside or to the outside and also the connection kind of between us and there's the larger government and the apparatus that was keeping us there. And he was um, pretty unsophisticated, I think, which is why we gave him that name. He was just sometimes just make me really angry. He could just be just, just the way that he could just so flippantly kind of talk about our captivity as kind of this like political gain you know there were times that that also that we would see him and he would just ask us he would be kind of conversational ask us what we thought about the Arab Spring uh you know ask us about the U.S. um and I think that a lot of my relationship with him spoke more about the psychology of being captive than um, about him as an individual, because I, on the one hand, just despised him, but I also needed him, you know, I needed him to get books and to get letters and to try to pass messages, to higher authorities. So it was always this kind of dance of maintaining this tension with him where, you know, we were making demands, we were threatening to hunger strike, um, and also trying to keep him in this weird way on our side. And I think he also, you know, saw himself as somebody who was both serving his government and serving us, you know, in a way. Like when we got out, he was he was taking responsibility for our freedom. It was like it was because of him that we were getting out. And I think that he actually believes that, that, you know, he said something to someone and then they somehow decided to let us go. Yeah. Josh, what do you think? Um, there were, um, I think of dumb guy and I think of, uh, a character that we, that I call in the book friend, because that's what he wanted me to call him, but he, his name is David because they simultaneous, they made, there was something that, that racked against like all my instinct, which is especially in solitary confinement, but continuing thereafter when I wanted another human being to connect to, to talk to, to believe. Like when dumb guy would tell me, you know, would give me things like letters and books and would try to act assuringly that we'd get out or something, uh, good would, would happen. I wanted so much to believe him. I wanted so much to like this person. But at the same time, whenever 
I thought about what was actually happening. I could see that it was manipulation. Uh, and that's what would happen with David uh, as well. He would, he would come and uh, be nice to me, you know, one time when he came to the cell as a, as a guard. And then the next time he would take my books or whatever I had in my cell from me. And there's this way in which the, the sort of best part of me, like the most trusting sort of instinctual way of relating to other human beings is just kind of pulled out from under me. But I had to learn that lesson over and over again because there is this mix where I'm dependent on them. And I'm, I'm not used to seeing like uh, the, the only other human beings in my time, like when I'm in solitary, as my enemy, you know, I'm, I'm used to seeing them as the person who could, you know, who could help me, that's how I'm wanting to see them. So it, uh, it, it really is this uh, confused situation, and in a, in a lot of ways, that's what they take advantage of, is how uh, needy we are. You know, it's just, I felt that the, the, the worst part about it was that uh, or one of the worst parts, I would say, is that it felt like they were taking advantage of the kindest part of me. Because when I could get, I could get mad at them, and then, uh, and then, you know, it would just, you know, we would just be getting into the instances that we have in the book where we would be sort of banging on the door or kind of being confrontational. Um, but so often they'd be taking advantage of, uh, of, of trust, of any inkling of trust. That is. So would it be safe to say, Sarah, that if kindness was shown, if understanding and compassion was shown, it was for for the purposes of manipulation? Oh, I, I wish I wish I could come to some sort of like clear. I mean, even inside with with my interrogator that I came to call Father Guy, not to his face, but um, in my own mind, I wanted him to be pure evil. I wished that I could just think this man represents a system that I loathe. Everything that they're doing is wrong. He's not a human being. I'm just trying to manipulate him to get what I want. And he's trying to manipulate me. But humanity does come in. Um, I mean, it's a very unhealthy manifestation of, of humanity. But what I really saw in my interrogator is a weak and ashamed human being just struggling to justify himself, to assuage his own conscience by by helping me in some small way, by giving me a book, by showing me pictures of my family. Um, but it was a relationship in which that was defined by power. And I um, would only give him, I guess, a, you know, a little bit of what he needed by saying things like, I know you're doing what you can. I appreciate you're trying to help me. Um, if he would give me something back. So it was very much a relationship of exchange. You know, it reminds me of a lot of people asked me what it was like when I finally got to meet President Ahmadinejad. You know, these people in positions of extreme power, and I don't believe that, that he had total power over our situation, but I do believe that he um, could have done more earlier, sooner to end it. Um, but when I was sitting with him face to face, he, it was so hard for him to even, you know, meet my gaze or listen to me. He kept talking to the other people in the room, and I had to kind of yell almost to get his attention and lock eyes with him. And what I saw was another human being stuck. Um, or not stuck, I mean, you know, in his case, much more by choice and also with the interrogator. That's the thing is when you're in a position of power, you're there by choice and you do have a lot more responsibility than obviously a prisoner does. But I still saw someone who couldn't really justify their own actions. Do you guys think you were treated differently than the Iranian prisoners? Did you see the treatment? Yeah, I think we were. We, there was a way that we, we had kind of protection with the status of our case that we were kind of had this international attention on us. Iran was trying to get something from, from the United States by holding us. And we came to, to know that and we used it to kind of push for improvements and conditions. At the same time, we were hearing from time to time uh, other prisoners being beaten and people that just were just completely, completely broken. There was one man that would scream in terror whenever somebody would open his door. He barely even sounded human, to be honest. At first, we had no idea if... It was terrifying, you know, we didn't know if we would we would be tortured, but we later kind of felt confident that we wouldn't be physically tortured. Um, at the same time, we were isolated more than a lot of Iranian prisoners. You know, we were kept in solitary confinement longer than most 
people are. Sarah was kept alone for a year, and we had almost no contact with the outside. We had um, three phone calls, three five-minute phone calls in you know, over two years. Uh, we had no contact with our lawyer. So it was double-edged, but you know, overall, I would say that we were in a privileged uh, position compared to Iranians. And also, you know, when we got out, we left and we didn't have to worry about repercussions afterwards. Yeah. Josh, did you want to add to that? No, I think that was a pretty fair rendition. Josh, on page 25, um, an interrogator is asking you about your position on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I think it's sort of you guys were all worried about the issue coming up and it finally did. This is where this is the page I think where you you voice your support for the Palestinians, but also little just a little later in the same page describe how your Jewish father had always interpreted your pro-Palestinian position as a per- personal rejection of him. And as the ordeal dragged on, it was really interesting for me to see um, how you how your experience you you experience your Jewishness in different ways. Is, is really is sort of a study, almost a study for me of identity and how it sort of shifts with its environment and how uh, it grows into itself. And um, can you describe what what this imprisonment did for your identity and your faith and your spirituality as a Jew? Well, well uh, it definitely shifted things, you know. There was a point um, sort of in the depths of solitary confinement where I became more religious than I'd ever been by far. Uh, and it was really, it was both internal and external. It was internal in the way of uh, anything evoking religion became hopeful for me. So the call to prayer um, became my daily time to pray. At the same time, I was keeping kosher as best I could remember the rules of kosher. I was uh, trying to remember Jewish holidays and and find little ways to mark them and celebrate them. So, but you weren't you weren't this sensitive to the rituals before. This is something. No, 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 no. I didn't care about that stuff before. I. I mean, it was like, um, you know, I, I was raised pretty secular. I, my, my parents aren't really that religious, and I, I certainly was less, than, less religious than them. And sometimes I'd, you know, you know I'd celebrate Hanukkah because I would get gifts, but that would be about, about it for most years. Um, so, but when I was in prison, when, it, when I had nothing, that, that was one of the places I went. I went to my memories, my connections to people, my love of, of family and friends. And, and I also went into some notion of a higher being. And that took kind of a pretty eclectic form, as you see in the book, in terms of uh, whether it was the Muslim called the prayer or, or Jewish holidays or my yoga practice and, and whatnot. Um, but then there was another element that was very much identity-based for me, which which was about kind of claiming uh, a, my Judaism because I was so ashamed of of speaking and thinking uh, of being Jewish, um, of just like being of Jewish heritage, to my interrogators. That at a certain point, I kind of just said uh, to myself that you know I'm just going to own this. I'm going to kind of. I went from a place of great fear about it to kind of just going to own it and see, you know, hopefully nothing bad happens from it. And so at that point, it became, I guess, Judaism became in a large part a way to connect to my family, um, but also uh, and a way to kind of gain strength from thinking about myself in like a long history of, of people and of of part of something greater, um, both my family and also the Jewish people, you know, some, some greater entity than just my solitary self. Um, that changed particularly in form uh, when, um, when I got out of solitary confinement and Shane and I were in the same cell. I found that my mental health like, rapidly improved um, just by sharing a cell. Uh, with Shane and I within a few uh, I'd say within a couple months the practices of the my my regular practices of Jewishness started uh, I started observing less so I would uh, make I used to mark the Friday night um, Sabbath uh, I stopped doing that um, I eventually stopped um, 
doing what I would call kosher eating there. Uh, and so it be- I, I realized that while my desire for my belief in, my honest belief in a higher power uh, and a more than human world was still deep in me, this sort of Jewish form to it and the Jewish identity that I had been clinging to in solitary confinement, uh, I, when I was less desperate and when I was out of solitary, I needed it less and I let, it that, I let that go. And it felt more honest in that it reflected also more where I was before prison, which is I can, you know, with a very um, sincere spiritual life, but one that doesn't take the form of a a Jewish spirituality, um, but rather a type of Jewish identity. So you talked about, you know, in the beginning, what rule sort of what defined your attitude towards your Jewishness, at least when confronting the inter or the when the interrogators were confronting you was fear and shame. What was their response to you to your Jewishness? You know the the initial response was almost like aha, this is what we 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 got something on him, and that was what I was most worried about. Uh, and I think what partially was going on was a dynamic that I played into, which was I was so worried about it that they saw me fearful and wanted to keep me in that sort of subjected position. But as as time went by and I felt I felt no real repercussions, uh, at, you know, um, for being Jewish, I think that's when I felt a little bit more... Um, comfortable in in it um because they yeah there was a sense of like okay this might be something you know basically how i thought about it is this could be something we can frame him with um but i I don't know really so in the sense that okay they're trying to prove that you guys are spies and if he's jewish then it's more likely that he's a spy Jewish, his father's Israeli. Uh, that I mean, these are that that stuff goes a long way in the Iranian courts. In fact, that is that was most of the prosecutor's case against me. Right. Did these interrogators really believe that you guys were spies? <clears throat> no, I would say in my case, definitively no. My interrogator um, had a really hard time, even in the second or third week. After we were transferred, the first month we were in the Revolutionary Guard custody in another part of of the Avene complex. But when we were transferred to 209, where political prisoners are held during interrogation, my interrogator there, he spoke English. Um, He's the one I I started to call Father Guy. And it was very clear to me that he was embarrassed by the line of questioning when it came to espionage charges. And he also blatantly said to me, I know you're not a spy. I mean... I think he also used that as his line of interrogation to try to get me to to sympathize with him more and, you know, perhaps to get more out of me. But it was so clear there was just nothing to get. Yeah. Shin, did you want to add something to that? Uh, yeah, just that, you know, the my interrogator told me pretty early on that he knew I wasn't a spy and that our situation was political and that it was about, you know, negotiations between their government and our government. You know, there were different times that they were trying to get different things. They were trying to do a prisoner exchange and with various prisoners throughout our two years there. Right. You guys, throughout this conversation, you've been talking about solitary confinement. And Sarah, you spent more than a year in solitary confinement. Can you, I, I guess, I, I honestly don't know how you would even go about sort of talking about that in the little time that we have, but d- could you try to maybe talk about the experience a little bit? Well, your your world really shrinks. I mean, all of prison is designed to cut people off from the world, cut people off from their families and, and anything that can, and, you know, the conditions of life in, under which human beings thrive, right? Prison is the polar opposite of that. And solitary confinement is the deep end. When you're severed from human contact, it feels like a slow death. You're, you slowly lose touch with who you are, what you believe in, everything that you love, everything that's important, and becomes 
abstract and far away. I remember trying to remember what my sister's voice sounded like, trying to remember what the ocean smelled like. And you can't really evoke those things with your mind. It becomes sort of just one-dimensional, abstract impressions, words more than anything, when no sensory experience. So people go really crazy. Um, in the worst days, I would throw my books against the wall because I couldn't concentrate. I kept reading the same paragraph over and over again and not understanding anything. And I, I lost control and at times felt like I was on the edge of sanity. But what always brought me back was that I knew that I wasn't forgotten in there, that I knew that so many people on the outside were fighting for us. And so many people don't have that. Yeah, I'm actually glad you, you talked about that because this gets into my next question, which is during this whole period where you guys were in confinement, what was the outside world doing for you guys, for you, for you to get out of Iran? Well, it's different in all of our cases. I mean, I think the thing that I credit our campaign and our, the, the incredible campaign that our friends and families were able to put together with obviously no experience in this, in this kind of field or situation was that from the beginning, the campaign really upended the, the narrative of enmity between the U.S. and Iran. The whole message was, we have nothing against the Iranian people, that we, our families want only good relationships with Iran, and that this policy of our, go of our government, of the U.S. government, and also a lot of the actions and policies of the Iranian government are just increasing this, this and really creating a relationship of, of animosity that doesn't serve either side. So I think that helped a lot that that was always the dominant message being projected by our campaign. What was the United States government doing to facilitate your release? Yeah, I mean, well, as soon as I got out, I was in the center of the campaign. I was meeting dozens of meetings with on the highest levels in the White House and the State Department. All we were asking for was the smallest diplomatic gesture. At one point, and I was bringing direct messages through the Omani envoy because the Omani government was negotiating our case from the very beginning. And often the messages that he would be giving me, the Omani envoy, were straight from Ahmadinejad's office saying, all we need is a letter, something like a letter from President Obama saying that he wishes that, he hopes that relationships between the U.S. and Iran will improve. Sometimes it was asking for the release of a few Iranian students that had been detained in the U.S. for overstaying their visas. And again and again, all we heard were these were non-starters. These small diplomatic gestures could not be given. And it was very discouraging because we, we knew that it was a bad time, that Obama was up for re-election, and that he didn't want to look weak on Iran. And since then, there has been a warming of relations and, you know, inching closer to a nuclear deal. But that didn't come soon enough to, to benefit us in any way. Yeah. What was the Oman? What was Oman's interest in this case? I mean, all we can do is guess. But, you know, I kind of think of Oman as like a Switzerland of the Middle East in some ways where it's its power is kind of in its relationships. You know, it doesn't have a big military. It has good relationship with both Iran and the U.S. I think it strengthened their relationship um, with both those countries. And, you know, it even led the way, we later found out, led the way to um, secret n nuclear negotiations between the U.S. and Iran before the more public negotiations. So it was like our detainment and the kind of Oman's involvement in that kind of created this pathway that was then used for the nuclear uh, negotiations. Yeah, we, we know that Obama had called Sultan Qaboos of Oman to pressure him to help make this deal to get us out. We also know that after we were released, Hillary Clinton, then Secretary of State, went to Oman. So this kind of attention from the world's biggest superpower is a motivating force. Unfortunately, uh, it is one of the motivating forces to, uh, to help the process. So where does the U.S. rigidity come from that you were running into as far as the Secretary of State Clinton was concerned? You, you guys had a meeting, and that meeting was actually really interesting to me in the book. Where, where was this sort of rigidity coming from? Well, I think that the rigidity is um, a longstanding result of, of decades of both sides missing so many opportunities for 
amicable and, you know, just diplomatic, normal diplomatic relationships. I think that there was a sort of, both sides were reluctant to do anything that the other side would perceive as making, you know, emboldening them and making the other side look weaker or stronger. I mean, it's this kind of bizarre, you know, this tit for tat. No one wants to play by the other other side's rules. Everyone wants, the U.S. is always, there was one instance where um, I was in a meeting with, um, in the White House, and they were saying, okay, we're going to put Jendela on the terrorist list, and we should have done this a long time ago. This is the right thing to do. They are a terrorist organization. And the only reason that it wasn't done is because, you know, politics. And they said, I hope this helps your case. I hope this helps get Shane and Josh out of prison. So I immediately called the Omani envoy and I said, this is great news. They're going to put Jandala on the foreign terrorist list. And he said, wait, wait, first let me check in with um, my contacts in Iran, with Ahmadinejad's office and the Supreme Leader to make sure that they understand this is tied into your case. The U.S. on their side didn't wait for confirmation from the Iranian side that this would actually um, be tied into our case. They went ahead with, with was was the right thing to do, putting Jandala on the terrorist list. But of course, that made the Iranians very angry. They said, you know, we're trying to negotiate here and you're treating us with no respect and you're not even doing it in, in the proper way. So at some point in the book, it becomes clear that you completely give up hope that or at least it, it it seemed to me that you sort of relinquish any hope of the United States government being able to do anything to get Josh and Shane out. What made you make that decision? Well, I mean, it just it had been, I think I'd been out of prison around eight or nine months when it started to just feel like a black hole. We were planning another trip to DC to meet um, with Secretary Clinton. And I think it was, I think the ninth or 10th trip um, at least once a month, we were flying to D.C. And, and we weren't getting anything back. Nothing was happening. That really forced us to start to rely on third party governments. The Omani government from the beginning played a really constructive role. But I think one of my most still favorite moments from the campaign was when Sean Penn, the actor, was able to get the former president, Hugo Chavez, to call President Ahmadinejad. And he just said, we're brothers, you know, what are you doing? These young people, they're obviously not spies, you need to let them go. And Ahmadinejad said, well, normally I don't intervene in my judiciary, but for you, my brother, you know, it will be done. And it, it of course didn't happen immediately because the cogs of the Iranian judiciary moved very slowly. But I do believe that that phone call, that one phone call made a difference. And it just shows politics are about relationships. It's about tit for tat. Um, Ahmadinejad knew that he couldn't deny the president of Venezuela that favor. Mm. Yeah, politics is about favors. Okay, we we are sort of running out of time here, and I have so many more questions. But I I guess I want to end on your time since all three of you have finally found your way out um, of prison. What have you been doing? How has this experience changed your life work? I think it's impacted my work pretty directly. Um, you know, after I got out, I thought that I would kind of, after some time passed, go back to um, reporting in the Middle East. And I have done that a little bit, but I found myself really being drawn to um, prison issues and the prison system in, in this country, which is the largest in the world. So I've been for a couple of years now um, writing about uh, um, the U.S. prison system and the kind of larger criminal justice system, you know, also involving policing and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I think having been a prisoner, um, I kind of have a new perspective on prison. And it just, the deeper I get into to our prison system, the more I realize and understand how deeply problematic it is. So I started by kind of reporting on solitary confinement in this country where we have people that are in solitary for decades and it's kind of gone on from there to, to just other issues throughout the system. Josh, what about you? Um, you know, it hasn't, my life's work, I was still sort of being sorted out, but, uh, I, it's been it's impacted my day to day. It has impacted how I see the world. I mean, in a lot of ways, 
it's made me a more angry person. Uh, in other ways, it's made me a more compassionate person. It's, um, it's, 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 it's impacted me, and that's unraveled slowly over the past few years. Uh, one way it's, uh, it's impacted my, my life's work in this way has been that uh, I've gone on to be a PhD student in, um, in history, and uh, one of the things I'm studying is uh, Middle Eastern Jewry and uh, this sort of um, mixed uses of minority groups, the sort of uh, different uses that minority groups have for uh, outside powers in the Middle East, let's put it that way. Uh, and that's something that is related for sure to uh, kind of being, uh, having spent more time in the Middle East than I uh, had intended. What about you, Sarah? Well, I, um, when I first got back from prison, I, I felt um, really alone. I felt like I didn't understand what had happened to my brain in isolation all that time. I didn't understand my identity was kind of in shambles. And I, my work has been a really important part of putting that back together. Shane and I have been kind of a team um, addressing the issue of solitary confinement in, in our own unique ways. I've been gathering testimonies of people in solitary across the country for the last several years. They're going to be put into a book that will be published next year and a play that I wrote, a theater piece called Opening the Box. And I do journalism with Solitary Watch, and it's really helped me make sense of, you know, there's no excuse for what the Iranian government did to us and what it does to its own people. But the, the torture that I see in my own backyard is, um, in many cases, much more extreme. And that's where I feel most drawn to make sense of my experience and contribute. Really, I mean, I consider myself very lucky, and with that luck comes a lot of responsibility. On that note, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really enjoyed our conversation. I wish you all the best in your endeavors, and I, I actually want to just hug you guys, but I can't do that, so all the best to you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.